Think on your feet for our Fast and Curious 5K, a -a one-of-a-kind race hosted by WBEZ and the Chicago Sun-Times on Saturday, July 27th at Humboldt Park. More info and early bird registration at wbez.org slash events. From WBEZ Chicago, this is Nerd at Recaps. I'm Greta Johnson. I'm Trisha Bobita, and joining us as always is Peter Sagel. I'm sorry. Did I interrupt your train of thought? <laughs> oh, now I'm scared. Oh, yeah. <laughs> oh, dear. Today we're recapping the 1994 Quentin Tarantino film Pulp Fiction. It, this is actually our first Oscar winner that we That's have interesting. Although it won the out. Oscar for Best Screenplay, right? Nothing else. Yes, Best Screenplay. Right. Okay. I did watch it with subtitles on so I could appreciate the writing more. That's a thing yes. I actually do. I know. Yeah. If I think I'm going to like the writing, I like to read it as I watch it. Yeah, no, I think that makes total, especially because in a lot of the, like, the conversations go pretty fast yeah. in a lot yeah. of these. So, like, I find it very helpful to have those subtitles. Greta, you said on Twitter that you had never seen it before. Right. So you saw it for the first time. Uh, Trisha, had you seen it before? Nope, not till last night. I'm going to express surprise, even though I didn't see last week's movie before we talked about it, only because, like, this is just such an incredibly seminal movie. Yeah. I mean... Well, yeah, I think what's funny about it is, and uh, Trisha, I'm curious if you felt the same way, but there were, like, certain things about the story that I knew were going to happen. Right. Because it is, like, just from, like, cultural osmosis. Yeah. I've heard so much about Pulp Fiction. And I listened to the soundtrack a lot when I was in high school. So... I I felt like I had a sense like I was going to recognize it even though I had right. never seen you, you can it, go which I did. to you can go to one of those you know quote movie quote websites on IMDb or elsewhere and practically see the entire screenplay. Yeah, totally. Because almost every exchange in it has been immortalized as a great movie quote. Right, like that the whole Royale with cheese right. thing. I and, totally knew. And so it just I mean I'm not I'm not criticizing. I'm just saying it's interesting that you guys knew this and you knew this movie had like so influential and popular and you never said, oh, maybe I should see it." Well, I ha- I was really worried I was going to hate it. Mm. But you liked the music. <laughs> yeah. Why were you worried you were going to hate it? Right. But I, well, partly because I loved the music in Reservoir Dogs, but I did not like that movie either. Uh-huh. Um, and I, I mean, Tarantino, they're so violent. They're often really self-indulgent. Uh, I did lie about the three hours thing. Turns out it was more like two and a half hours, which, <laughs> you know, I was glad to see that. But yeah, I thought it was just going to be like long and violent and... Uh, Woman hating and uncomfortable, pretty much. And was it to skip to the end? Uh, I mean, I definitely, I liked it a lot. I think we could have had almost none of the Bruce Willis storyline, and I would have been totally okay with that. But I enjoyed watching this movie a lot. Okay, Trisha? what did you think, Trisha? I I liked it a lot too, and I like a lot of other Tarantino stuff. I've seen most of his later work, most of his work maybe in the last decade or so. Once upon mm-hmm. a time in Hollywood, I adored. Um, so it was definitely for me one of those movies where I had just missed it, and it just never. Since it's not, let's be honest. Since it's not on the things I already subscribed to, and wasn't just in front of my face, uh, in terms of Netflix or Hulu or whatever, <laughs> it wasn't just there. Uh, as I was looking at old movies ever in the last few years. I'm sure I would have watched it before now, but uh, that's why I'm excited about this podcast is because it's making me go back and watch things that I just missed. Right. So Not what you're saying is intention. if there were if there were like an R-rated version of TBS where they just like played the same movie over and over, you would have seen Pulp Fiction by now. <laughs> yeah, like if on Christmas they showed it for 24 hours straight. <laughs> 
then I would have seen it by now. Also, Peter, you have to understand, I consume a lot of pop culture, but mostly it's the West Wing over and over again. I understand. And and, and there's only so many hours in the week, and most of them are filled up with rewatching West Wing. There's so many hours to rewatch West Wing. Let's let's be reasonable on the demands in your time. So it's it's always really interesting to go and see a movie that you've heard about your whole life that's like people reference all the time, and there it is. So what did you guys think? Did it live up to the hype? I think so. I, as somebody who really loves short stories as a mm-hmm. thing to read, um, and who uh, likes sort of clever banter, this movie had both of those things in spades. Um, I also thought that Samuel L. Jackson was even better than I thought he was going to be somehow, even amazing. though everyone had told me he was going to be the greatest in this movie. And uh, and yeah, I liked. Uh, I liked the way they played with time. I liked the way, uh, you know, we sort of bookended the story with the first, you know, couple in the restaurant and the last scene of the movie. I, I liked the architecture of it a lot. I thought that it was um, interesting. And in the in the way that I usually feel about Tarantino, like, yes, there are things that I find problematic um, in terms of depictions of women. And, and, you know, I'm not a huge fan of how violent it is. That's not the draw for me. But I also just really respect the hell out of the fact that his movies feel like one person's vision realized in a way that's interesting to see. It feels more like reading a novel to me where it's like, oh, one person had most of the roles, like had most of the creative authority at least. Yeah. And where some movies can feel like they're camels because their horse is designed by committee. Yeah. Tarantino films don't feel like that to me. They sometimes feel too long because maybe he did need somebody to tell him to cut that one thing. <laughs> but he gets to make the movie he wants to make. And there's something sort of exciting about the idea of an artist getting to make the thing they want to make and then getting to see it. He is definitely one of the few movie directors who legitimately deserves to like be the be the basis of an adjective. Like Tarantino-esque. You know? Yeah. Yes. Yes. I mean, you can't say that about like Tony Scott. You know, it's like Tony Scott-esque. What do you mean? Like competent <laughs> Hollywood movie making? Yeah. He's really, uh, he's, I mean, he's he's definitely an auteur. It's interesting, Trisha, to hear you use the word realize with Tarantino and the way he makes this because the French word for director is réalisateur. Ooh, mm. drop some of French on and us. And I love that. The idea of just like making it like real you know because yeah. he does do and i think that so much of it too is like the framing of everything yeah it's like beautiful. he's so good like you see exactly what he wants you to see and no more and no less in every frame which is just really like it's a it's a good ride you yeah know? um yeah i'm glad you guys liked it i was surprised i liked it so much i had seen it when it came out it was a big deal Tarantino, as you guys had already mentioned, had made this this indie hit, Reservoir Dogs, which everybody freaked out for because it was so cool and yet so small. And he did it all with like filmmaking bravado and acting and uh, and it's in and black writing. and white, right? No, but it could be. I mean, it's, it's <laughs> such a small movie, yeah, and it's for all some just about. I, I mean, was. it's like some. It's like the best movie you could make with essentially a budget of four thousand dollars. It's incredibly good, and everybody's like, "Well, what's gonna? What's he gonna do next?" <laughs> And, and to this, this day, we should point out, and to this day, the Reservoir Dogs poster is in 47% of college dorm rooms. Right, right. <laughs> and I am going to just say one more time, that soundtrack is amazing. It's amazing. <laughs> uh, and, and then this movie was his follow-up. Uh, he's going to write and direct. He had a bigger budget, although not that big, weirdly. Um, and it, it won the Palme d'Or, some award at Cannes, and they rolled it out with such extraordinary ability to make it the movie event that everybody had to go see. And I went and saw it, and I loved it at the time. But um, I have not liked most of his movies since then. Uh-huh. I think they've gotten increasingly repetitive, and they've shown up his 
basic weakness as an artist, which is that he doesn't seem to know a lot of actual human beings and how they act, which can become <laughs> wearing. And, you know, and you can talk about the things he keeps coming back to again and again and again. So I was like, well, since I, I assume that, you know, I hadn't seen any of that stuff before when I saw Pulp Fiction, which is why I liked it. Now I will go watch it again and see it has the same dumbass things he's been doing for 20 years. So it won't be that interesting. I was wrong. It was great. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, and I, I, it, it maybe it was because he hadn't worn those tropes out yet. Maybe it was because he went at it with it was excitement. the first time he played that deck. Yeah, yeah. But I, for example, one of the things you mentioned, Tricia, the way it plays with time. Yeah. Just. Yeah. I remember delighted me because it was always something I had been interested in as like a reader and a writer is like how you, you know, fool people as to what time, what time it is and going back and forward in time. And when I realized that we were going back to the day, the day prior, however many days prior, when John Travolta's character was still alive to finish the movie, I was like, oh, boy. Yeah. You had to have a character killed off, but then be back. Yes. And the reveal that 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 storyline, the Travolta and Jewel story. I'm sorry, I should use. We're going to use their character names. The the, the Vincent and Jewel storyline intersects with a Honey Bunny and Ringo storyline at the end of the movie. It's like, oh, this is great. It was the same place. That's oh, my God. I (laughs) so I. I I loved it. It also had some things that uh, I had not remembered. He he hasn't done well since then. Like he's not really good at like human relationships. He doesn't really understand. It seems in a lot of his later movies how people relate to each other other than through violence. Yeah, that's Mo- true. Most of his interactions, <laughs> most of his scenes between people, as delightful as they are written, are really about: is this person going to kill the other person or not? And it's a lot of tension leading up to the final decision, like that, like twenty-minute scene in the basement in uh, in Glorious Bastards is like the quintessential Tarantino scene. Are they going to kill him? Is he going to get killed? Oh my well, god! I yes. feel like we get we that the, some of that is definitely in this. Movie, yes, absolutely. You know? Which is God. Yes, I mean the whole scene in the apartment. You know when, when Jules and and Vince walk in, that whole sequence is basically about rising tension until he kills everybody. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but. Mm-hmm. In this movie, I had forgotten the scenes between John Travolta and Uma Thurman are genuinely sweet. They're yeah. Yeah, well, they're like you yeah. actually buy that they're attracted to each other, that they're intrigued by each other, that they're relating to each other as human beings, and then of course something else happens, which is something else yeah. to talk about. But I was like, all right, yes, this is a movie filled with recognizable human beings. I kind of enjoy it in the way that like a you know movies that I certainly would watch, but like a, a Bond or a Bourne movie. The people who are the hitmen are sort of these machines. Right. Right. Before we see these guys scare these dumb young hamburger breakfast eating kids, we hear them sort of bickering in the hallway and then they're like, oh, hang on, it's too early. Like all the references to how early in the morning all this awful stuff is happening. Yes. Mm Cracking me up too. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But, you know, so, so they've already taken the wind out of these guys' sails as like tough guys for us as an audience before they go in and start threatening people with guns, which is a very fun thing to do in this movie. Yeah, it is. I think so. We have some clips. And before we get too far ahead of ourselves, I want to actually listen to uh, early on right before the credits start to roll, because uh, partly because it's something that's in it's in the soundtrack, which means that I knew the lines, (laughs) you know, 20 years before I ever saw the movie. And it was so much fun to, like, see them in real life. A lot of people come to restaurants. A lot of walnuts. Pretty smart, huh? I'm ready. Let's do it right now, right here. Come on. All right. Same as last time, remember? <laughs> Your crowd control. I handle employees. Mm-hmm. Mm. 
I love you, honey bunny. Everybody be cool, this is a rubbery! Any one of you fucking prince moves! And I'll execute every motherfucking last one of you! So that's your Independence Day speech, Greta? You've got yeah, that one totally. in the bag? Yep, yep, exactly. She's like, all right, motherfuckers, let's go. So is that how the album starts? Like the soundtrack yes. album starts with the dialogue there and then yep. All right, it's not even that much dialogue, actually. I think it might even just be I either the I love yous or just like, all right, this is a stick up. And then it goes into Misery Lou, which is like such a great track. Right. And it's just I feel like I feel like uh, I, I should uh, speak for the privilege of age and and tell you guys and remind you how much this movie changed. Uh, it made Dick Dale famous again. The guitarist who's playing Misery Lou, you just heard <laughs> it, it, it revived the career of John Travolta, who, after yeah. being hailed as one of the great movie actors of all time in the early 80s, had kind of started sliding down to like making doing the voice of babies and look who's talking in its sequel. <laughs> in fact, there's a story I remember of like Quentin Tarantino, like just desperately wanting to cast John Travolta. And people were like, John Travolta, he's has been. And how Tarantino like went to Travolta's house and was like, what happened to you, man? You're a great actor. Why are you voicing babies? So it made Travolta into a star again. It totally made Samuel You know L. who the other guy was who voiced a baby in Look Who's Talking and Look Who's Talking too, though, don't you? Who? I actually ended up looking this up. Bruce Willis. Oh, yeah. Those That's are the true. only other movies that Travolta and Willis are in. And you know what's really weird about that? What? Amy Heckerling wrote those movies. Oh, my gosh. And she wrote Clueless. We're creating a Nerdette Recaps bubble verse. This of is our That's how we connect strange. Pulp Fiction to Clueless, which I just thought was really weird. Anyway, Peter, and, I didn't mean to interrupt it, you. Please keep sa- going. Please. I'm sorry. Did I interrupt your train of thought? <laughs> please proceed. No. Oh, are you finished? Then let me retort. <laughs> Samuel L. Jackson. Samuel L. Jackson. Samuel L. Jackson went from a, a character actor who a, a lot of directors like Spike Lee loved to work with, but was like definitely like an ensemble character actor. Like five years before, he had played a character in the great movie Sea of Love called Black Guy. That's where he was. Hmm. And this movie like started the, the extraordinary legend of Samuel L. Jackson. Did you know that Samuel L. Jackson? is the most profitable movie star of all time, that his wow, movies have made more money than any other single actor, and that's primarily really? wow. because of the Star Wars movies, the prequels. Oh, yeah. that's sure. awesome. But yeah, and this all started it. Everybody was like, holy, I guess I shouldn't say, but yes. Um, and it totally started this genre of Tarantino-esque movies. There are so many movies, like Guy Ritchie's movies, his early movies in Britain that are all mm-hmm. about gangsters and their and their fast moving patter what is it is it something something smoking yeah barrels? lock stock is and two the... smoking barrels yep. and all that there's so and, and and there's like boondock saints and all these movies yep. about yep. you know tough wisecracking guys and dialogue rich with pop culture reference all coming from this movie it changed a lot witty men with guns witty men with guns there you go it's also worth noting that this was the breakout movie for miramax Yes, that's which is also the company true. owned by Harvey Weinstein. So this was sort of like his rise. Yeah, his. It's funny when you when you see his name on the screen, you're like, oh, there he is. Yeah. yeah, yeah. But this is why he got to be so powerful and rich. It also technically was a Disney movie. Had Disney had Disney bought Miramax by that time? Based on uh, some single sourced internet research I did, yeah, they had just. This was the first movie post the Disney acquisition, I right. think. So it's technically. A Disney movie, which I just think is really funny because of how violent it is. (laughs) 
Let's listen to a voicemail uh, from someone who does not agree with us. Oh. This is Glenn. Hey, Nerdette, Peter. This is Glenn from Pueblo, Colorado. Pulp Fiction. Quentin Tarantino. Self-indulgence is the only way I can describe him. And Pulp Fiction and Kill Bill 1 and 2 have made it mandatory for me to miss all of his other movies. They may be good. I don't know. He's just such a douchebag. Thank you. <laughs> it is hard not it's, to... It's I mean, it's opinion. weird. I can't think of another movie... Ma- like Richard Linklater, we talked about last week. Like I've yeah. seen many Richard Linklater movies. I've liked some, didn't like last week's. So that's fine. I have no personal opinion about Richard Linklater. I don't know what he's like. I'm sure he's a very nice man. But it's true. There's something about Quentin Tarantino movies that even if you've never met the man, you have very strong opinions about him yeah. because his, his personality and his interests are so on display. I also like that that voicemail started as though he was reciting a telegram. Uh, yeah, yes. or, you know, it's poetry. It's yes. douchebag poetry. Quentin Tarantino, stop. Um, <laughs> although it, it, he brought up something. First of all, I think that Pulp Fiction is a much, much, much better movie than the Kill Bill movies, which I do not think are very good. Um, yeah, I saw those and didn't love them either. And, and here's something that uh, many people on the internet had noticed. I didn't notice. I didn't was aware of it at the time. But um, when Amia, Uma Thurman's character, is explaining to Vince about the pilot that she did and she uh-huh. describes it. Uh, I forget what it's called. The Furious Foxy, Five. Fox, Fox, Fox Force, Force Five. Five. Fox Force Five. She's she's describing Kill Bill. That's <laughs> basically Kill Bill. That Kill Bill was about this group of assassins and she was one of them and there were four other. That's basically Kill Bill. And That's cool. And I, I mean, did Tarantino know that one day he actually wanted to write that movie? I don't know. With racist tropes? I'm sure he did. Yeah. <laughs> But with racist tropes and bizarre misogyny, (laughs) yes, I don't know. But, I I mean, if if you want to talk about, like, the difference between a good Tarantino movie, which is this one, and a bad one like Kill Bill, Kill Bill, all he's got is stuff he learned in the movies. He -hmm. just wanted to make a cool Chinese, Mm -hmm. Hong Kong-style kung fu movie. He wanted to do cool fights. He reused tropes that he had seen his whole life. And I, it, it's just like, Ugh. But Pulp Fiction, there's a lot of really cool, new, interesting, original stuff going on. And I thought that even seeing it again after how many years? They're, speaking of that scene where they're at, what is the diner called? It's called the Jack 50s Rabbit diner? Slims. Jack Rabbit Slims, which I looked up. It actually, they built that set for the film. I think that was the most expensive set that they made for it. It was about $150,000. Um, let's listen to a clip of it. This was probably my favorite moment of of. Uh, Mia and Vincent interacting in that scene. Don't you hate that? Hate what? Uncomfortable silences. Why do we feel it's necessary to yak about bullshit in order to be comfortable? I don't know. That's a good question. That's when you know you found somebody really special. And you can just shut the fuck up for a minute, comfortably share silence. Well, I don't think we're quite there yet, but don't feel bad. We just met each other. I'll tell you what. I'm going to go to the bathroom and powder my nose. And you sit here and think of something to say. I'll do that. I just love that. Partly because it also reminded me of that line from Best in Show. 
when she says, we can talk or not talk for hours. <laughs> Did you guys notice who the waiter is? Who Buddy Holly the waiter is? Yeah, Steve Buscemi. Yeah. yeah. Who was doing an uncredited bit. And he had starred in Reservoir Dogs, obviously. Mm-hmm. You know, one of the things, there are a lot of, I, I'm surprised by how many positive things I have to say, both about the movie and about Tarantino, but I'm just going to go with it. <laughs> He's really good with actors. Uh, he gets really great performances out of actors, which is weird for an, a writer-director who often, you know, because he's in total control, he'll he'll want the actors to do a particular thing. Won't uh, let them do it the way right. they I mean, see the, the, it the, should the, work. The, the most extreme example of that is George Lucas and the Star Wars prequels, where basically he wouldn't let the actors do anything except seriously intone all his terrible dialogue <laughs> with no, oh, no. emotion. Natalie Portman uh, and Hayden Christensen. Poor Natalie Portman, yeah. <laughs> oh. who, who I are mean, both those are two actors. people who've done, yeah, they've done other great movies, or at least good movies. Mm. But they weren't allowed to do anything like, I worry about the future of the trade alliance. And <laughs> and because that's what George Lucas wanted. And, and the fact that like Samuel Jackson is so great in this movie, to pick one of the many actors, is because Quentin Tarantino allowed him to be that great. And that's to everybody's credit. That reminds me of a note we got from Nick in his voicemail, which is it's weird realizing that this is when Samuel L. Jackson became a megastar because before this, he was just the ninth most famous person in Jurassic Park. Yes, that's true. <laughs> and very miscast. I don't know what he's doing in that movie. And it's weird. If you ever, if you if you go back and you see like Jurassic Park, say, or at the end of the other movies he did before this, you're like, why are they wasting Samuel L. Jackson? Right. Why don't they give him a Jerry Curl <laughs> wig and a gun and let him go nuts? Don't they understand who's in their movie? Yeah, it's Samuel L. Jackson. Uh, so one of the other things that I knew, probably the first thing that I ever knew about this movie is that it featured John Travolta wearing a University of California Santa Cruz banana yes, slug t-shirt because my parents are banana slugs. Oh, that's where they met, right? That's where they met. Yeah. yeah. So it's one of those, we- like, you know, never having seen Pulp Fiction, but I would say my parents went to UC Santa Cruz and people would be like, oh, cool, Pulp Fiction. I'm like... Yeah, man, totally. <laughs> I have no idea, really. Which then is funny, because also I went to St. Olaf, which one of the Golden Girls characters did, and I've still never seen Golden Girls, but that's one oh, that yeah. comes up. Golden it's like, Girl. oh yeah, Golden Girls. It's like, mm, I mean. Um, I went to Harvard. It never comes up in any movie. The, um, <laughs> hey yo. Hey yo. Can I'm we sorry, jingle that, I had please? to make that joke. Yeah, I feel like that's you got a, a jingle, jingle referencing Harvard. Yeah. <laughs> How many minutes has it been since Peter's mentioned Harvard? What a colossal tool. Ah, man, thank God we have a specific Harvard patriarchy that we can play. I appreciate you. This may be, in, in many, many hours of like podcast with you two, the first time I've ever actually mentioned I went to Harvard. That was a preemptive jingle <laughs> that, they, that they recorded years ago because they knew this day would come. Well, and isn't the isn't the the thing about people who go to Harvard that they never use the H word? Yes, that's true. I went to school right. in Boston. I went yeah, to school exactly. near Boston. Yeah, 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 yeah. Uh-huh. totally. Uh-huh. <laughs> uh, I think it's in time time we need to say something mean about Quentin Tarantino before I I lose my sense of balance and, and oh, guilty. Oh, okay. Uh, he can't act, and he <laughs> has always wanted to be an actor. And and his cameo as uh, Jimmy, I think his character is, uh-huh. uh, is a terrible mistake. And it's only useful because you watch it and you're like, oh, yes, acting in movies is actually very hard. 
<laughs> and wanting to do it and doing it are two very, very different things. He's just bad at it. And I was also surprised by how long that cameo was. When I saw in the opening credits that his name was in the cast list, mm-hmm. I was like, oh, there'll be like a little moment where he's like a cashier at a store. Well, like or Kathy Griffith is in this movie and you see her for three seconds and that's it. Jeez, I don't, where do you see Kathy Griffith? I forget. She's the one, oh my gosh, what is the line? She's helping out Bruce Willis after he is in that car crash. Oh, right. She's in the crowd of women. Yeah. If you need someone to go to court, I will be glad to help. Okay, that guy was a drunken maniac. He hit you, and then he crashed into that car. Who? Him. I'll be damned. Yeah, Julia Sweeney's in. All these people who are are movie actors and can act and can project a personality to a camera. It's really hard to do, and he can't do it. And... (laughs) It's it's a it's a, like the, the only really wrong thing about this movie is his appearance. It's like, why are you here? It's also the moment that made me realize again how old this movie is because of how much he has aged. Yes. Because even like Travolta mm. and Samuel L. Jackson, because they are movie stars whose faces are their jobs, like they're kept in like, you know, whatever goo Hollywood <laughs> people are kept in to keep them from aging as much as the rest of us. But Tarantino has for sure aged. Well, and with Travolta too, like he already looked aged in this movie compared to Greece, right? Yeah. You know, sure. it yeah, was yeah, like, yeah. like he already lost some of that. I think. You're right, and you, you guys, again, I'm, I'm just going to pull age rank. You, you, the moment where he gets up to dance in Jackrabbit mm-hmm. Slims was huge mm-hmm. because Saturday Travolta, Night Fever. Saturday Night Fever. He had, you know. He was almost, this is an exaggeration, he was like Gene Kelly. He was the greatest dancer on oh, film. Totally. He was amazing. And and the years had gone by and people had forgotten about him and he had gotten older because, as you say, he had came, he had come to fame as a very young man, as a teenager, basically. Uh, and then to see this older John Travolta get up and dance and, yeah. oh, my God, he that can still dance. So cool. It was so great. Did you guys see just in the last few weeks, I think it was, Lawrence Fishburne, who was apparently supposed to play... Uh, the Jules role said that just recently that the reason he turned down the role is that he didn't like the way it glorified the use of heroin, the movie. Yeah. That's um, interesting. Given how many people have died of opioids since this movie came out, that's a little hard that it's just sort of this quirky thing about this character. Oh, you know, he's, he likes to read um, novels in the toilet. He likes to shoot up. It's all cool, man. It's like, no, it's, it's not cool. Oh, that scene was so hard to watch. Well, yeah. and even, I mean, I mean, if that leads us to, Mia almost dying of this overdose. Yeah, so that was one of those things. I I knew there was an overdose in the movie. I had no idea the person survived, actually. I thought Mia died. Well, in the let movie. me ask you guys about this, because this is the difference between seeing the movie for the first time. One of the things about this movie that I, I, I kind of both love about it and kind of resent about it is how many times it, it sets up an expectation of what's going to happen and then totally turns another direction, right? So Tarantino very effectively sets up almost from the very first moment where they're talking about the guy who gave Mia a foot massage, mm-hmm. how incredibly perilous it is for Vince, John Travolta, to go and take Mia out on the town. And everything that happens between them, from, from Travolta walking into the house and Mia watching him on the screens like a predator choosing her next victim, mm-hmm. to the date where they genuinely seem to enjoy each other, where he is is legitimately convinced to come out of his shell and actually start relating to her as a person and not just somebody to be terrified of. Everything they do leads up to the audience's expectation that when they get back to the house, 
he's going to make a terrible mistake and start like making out with her or something like that and something terrible is yeah. going to happen and you wonder I love those she... bathroom pep talk scenes right and that is exactly the scene you're just going to say goodnight you're going to thank her you're going to go home you're going to jerk off that's what you're going to do <laughs> that is a perfect setup for him coming out and then something very different happening yeah. Mm-hmm. And yeah. then she reaches into his coat, which has been there the whole time. He's holding that coat in that famous little walking back and forth mm-hmm. meme that's been mm-hmm. there the whole time. He has, while you were paying attention to something else, he set that up, that there's this heroin in the pocket, that she snorts cocaine. It's all been there the whole time. She snorts cocaine, and all of a sudden the scene goes completely different than mm-hmm. anybody led to expect. Can I ask a thing, just because I t- I've, like, I've never seen cocaine or heroin up close? <laughs> I'm so surprised. <laughs> <laughs> but like, is it is it understand like is it logical? I guess that she was maybe thinking that was cocaine, and so it was it like you just wouldn't be able to tell the difference between powdered heroin and powdered cocaine before you put it in your nose, or did she think she was snorting heroin? Like a lot of public radio people, I have vast experience with illicit drugs, and <laughs> no, I actually uh, uh, that I had to look up as well. As you can imagine, this movie has had so much commentary and analysis. Yeah. Did you guys stumble into the whole band aid theory? Mm-hmm. Then what's in the briefcase is Marcellus Wallace's soul, and it was removed by the devil through the hole in the back of his head, which is mm-hmm. what the Band-Aid is. People have spent uh-huh. a lot of time talking about this movie. Yeah. Uh, people have pointed out that there's an exchange when Travolta is buying drugs from Eric Stoltz, and Eric Stoltz says... Balloon or baggie. Yeah, yeah. do you mind if I use a baggie because I'm out of a balloon? And he's like, yeah, no problem. So he puts the, the heroin in a baggie, and apparently at the time, cocaine came in baggies, Heroin came in balloons, which is so it was an honest mistake. Honest mistake, not an attempt to snort coke or snort heroin. I, 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 that's so I know what I tell you on the internet. I am not professing, ladies and gentlemen, to have any idea. (laughs) I mean, that's what what, that's kind of what I had gathered and and assumed too. But I mean, that just makes it all the more um, brilliant to me. The writing of it, where it's like, oh no, no, that exact one line of dialogue with Lance earlier is so that you can set up this moment later, right? right? Like this one little thing where I was like, this is kind of an odd moment where they're just discussing what to put the drugs in, right. and then it becomes the you know the thing that causes the overdose later. Let me ask you guys this. When I saw the movie, you know, this was during my, I was playwright, I was thinking constantly about narrative. I remember being cheated, feeling cheated that that particular scene, and we can talk about this again with the whole uh, sequence with Bruce Willis and the gold watch. I remember feeling cheated. I was like, oh, man, there's going to be a really difficult, awkward, tense scene as they work out their mutual attraction and either make a terrible mistake or not or whatever. And then when she snorted the heroin, all of a sudden, that never comes up again. You know, it's Mm -hmm. like, no, we're not going to make out. That's like totally an odd issue now. And I remember feeling cheated, which I don't now. Now I'm like, that's a much more interesting place to take the scene than Mm -hmm. where we all thought was going it. And I admired the misdirection. How did you guys feel the same way? I wasn't disappointed by it. It gave them a very different kind of secret to have to keep. And that moment where she's uh, walking back inside and said, like, I would be in as much trouble as you if this story came out was really sad. Like, it's such a it's like the one and maybe first and only honest moment of her character. Yeah. Because she's just almost died. And so, like, her guard is down a little bit more. Whereas, like, she spends every moment up to that point, like, pretending to be someone and then in that moment, she's like, oh, no, m- my husband is terrifying and I do drugs because my life is awful 
and please don't tell anyone. Like there's right. so much subtext in that moment and so much honesty mm-hmm. in that moment. Yeah. And, and, and I realized something that I didn't realize when I was younger and more critical, as we've discussed, which is that it, he's not avoiding the issue of Marcellus killing him if he touches his wife, because man, does he end up touching his wife? It also reminded me of something that we were talking about before, that the only way that Tarantino can think of people relating is in terms of violence, which is often terrible, but it's often sweet. Like, he, the, the consummation of their relationship isn't sex. It's him stabbing her in the chest with a needle to save her life. Yeah. And, and like, that's the nicest thing anybody does for anybody else in this movie almost (laughs) until we get to the end. He's like, oh, I'm going to do this terrible, violent thing to you and save your life. And that's, I just kept coming back to it. It's like, how else do people relate to each other in Tarantino movies except violence (laughs) or the threat of violence? You know what? And I want to talk about that specific scene when he does save her life, but let's do it right after a break. Think on your feet for our Fast and Curious 5K, a -a one-of-a-kind race hosted by WBEZ and the Chicago Sun-Times on Saturday, July 27th at Humboldt Park. More info and early bird registration at wbez.org slash events. Let's listen. Partly what I thought was so fascinating about that scene is how funny it managed to be, even though we were dealing with Mm -hmm. like a very intense overdose. Let's listen to some of it. She's getting shot. I'm going to go get my little bike medical book. What the fuck you need a medical book for? What to do? I never had to give an adrenaline You've never given an adrenaline well, I never had to, all right? I don't go toy popping with a bunch of bubble gummers. My face can't handle that. Get the shot! I am if you let me. Hey, someone fucking stop. Well, you stop talking to me. Start talking Get to her. shot! Right! Uh, one of the things that I admire, again, I find so much more I like about this movie than I thought, is like that scene, if you describe the plot, is like, Vince brings Mia to the house, gets a shot of adrenaline, which I don't know if it actually saves people from an overdose. Um, this is before Norcan, and, and stabs her and gives her a shot and wakes her up. That's what happens. And yet it's such a tense scene, and it's partially tense because of all those actors freaking out. Mm-hmm. Yeah. About, can you find yep. the book? Can you not find the book? Where's the shot? And it's great because they're anxiety and terror is contagious. It's like they're running around like terrified, like they know what the fuck is going to happen. And you're like, I don't know what the fuck's going to happen either. I did like that there was one like real high person though, that one girl who was just sort of like kind of paying attention. (laughs) (laughs) And then at the very, like there's this great moment in a shot that's sort of like a little bit like POV of Mia where it's like all the faces sort of um, yes. over her yep. and then and then the, the real high girl just kind of like leans into the frame like I <laughs> yeah. guess I'll watch this Yeah, it's better than what's and on TV adds. and there's a great <laughs> shot that again I hadn't noticed before of, of Travolta driving up and if you watch it it's like one continuous shot it's like no don't show up here and all of a sudden he hears the voice and he hears the sound the of Travolta yeah. and he looks out and the car speeds by to from your right to the left there's a sound of a crash and you follow the camera, the camera follows Stoltz as he runs out and there's the crashed car and yeah. Travolta pulling uh, Uma Thurman out of it. And you're like, how did they do that? Mm-hmm. That's a great sequence. Well, and did you guys read about uh, how they did the stabbing the needle in shot? Oh, yeah, I did. Movie, movie magic. It's just a reverse shot. It's oh, just him pulling his hand nice. away from her chest really quickly so that he could like f- you could see some sort of like real movement. And it 
didn't need to actually stop at her chest. So what you're saying is it was just old school boomerang effect. Ooh. It was old school boomerang. <laughs> let's listen to another voicemail. We haven't really discussed Bruce Willis's stuff at all yet. So let's hear from Lee and then we can talk about Bruce. Okay. Hi, Nerdettes and Peter. This is Lee from North Carolina and I really enjoy your recaps. I hope you'll keep them up. I didn't watch Pulp Fiction for several years after its release because I just didn't want to deal with the violence. And it is very violent, but it's a great movie with some wonderful performances. And it passes my Bruce Willis shirt test. Generally speaking, the sooner Bruce Willis is on screen with his shirt off, the less I like the movie. Die Hard? 15 minutes and I can't stand it. In The Sixth Sense, I think he keeps his shirt on the whole time and it's my favorite Bruce Willis movie. Pulp Fiction? A respectable hour and 12 minutes. Of course, that's about a minute into his second scene, but it's balanced by the rest of the movie. Thanks for this series of recaps. Is this is this a widely held opinion that people, that ladies do not want to see Bruce Willis no, take his I shirt off? I would have argued the reverse. Yeah, I sure. thought she, I, I, when she started, I was like... I was like, oh, great, shirtless Bruce Willis. Yeah, if he doesn't take his shirt off in the first half an hour, I'm not interested, but I was interested yeah. with the turn that took. I love Lee's spreadsheet that she's got somewhere. Isn't that amazing? 112 minutes it's pretty good so yeah i would say like i'm pretty sure i wouldn't have been mad if that entire thing were lifted out and i understand the importance of it from like the different timing of things and the mosaic the entire thing you mean the entire the entire bruce willis storyline which is called the the gold watch the gold watch yeah like the the backstory about the watch the the fight, the running away, especially the then like, you know, I guess seeing him shoot John Travolta is like maybe just up till that I was fine with. But then once it started getting extremely violent and like sadistic and terrifying, it, it, I was it gets like, really Do we weird. This? I mean, yeah, again, there's this sense of, of, of misdirection. Like he spends that amazing scene with Christopher Walken, that mo- that very famous monologue. Of about like, I carried this holding hunk the of metal the up my ass for five years. <laughs> uh, so you set up, he needs that watch. This is why the watch is so meaningful. This is why it's, it's basically a MacGuffin speech. We need this thing. And then there's that scene where he finds out his, his amusing girlfriend has forgotten it, and you understand exactly why it's so upsetting. But do you? It's so farcical, though, you it, know? It, how, I mean, if, if I... If you were sitting down as a screenwriting exercise and said, okay, it's important for this character to want a particular object or possession so much that he's willing to risk his life to get it, could you do a better job of setting that up than creating that backstory of that gold watch and where it came from and what it meant to him? I mean, it's like, yeah, I think it would not involve hiding it in my butt. Well, you're not Quentin Tarantino. (laughs) (laughs) Right. No, I mean, I'm sure it's probably the best version Tarantino could come up with but I think there are plenty of examples of like using three minutes to explain why something is important to a character that is that are more effective for sure Uh, maybe not in a Tarantino film maybe but for sure out there yes even even seeing him fiddle with that watch in his pocket nervously or something when he has that first scene with with Ving Rhames I didn't even notice like there no, no, I'm saying there could have been a moment oh, of the watch. Yes, like right. we had our first whole oh, interaction with him has no watch. Yeah. The- and he could have even just been like tapping it or like even just seeing it. Or like right? taking could've... it off before his fight or something, you know? 
as yeah. we're about to get to, there is a lot of uh, homosexual panic in this movie. <laughs> yeah. Uh, which is, is the anxiety of, of straight men being confronted by gay people. And uh, I, I, I... Or just the idea of other men's feet. Yeah, well, maybe, yes. Oh, yes, there's a lot. I forgot about that. The foot massage thing at the beginning, yeah. But having to put something up your ass plays into that. I mean, if if in, in the Tarantino-esque masculinity world... Sure. Having to put something up your ass is like, makes it like the last full measure of devotion in a weird way. Huh. And so I think that's that's why that's a part of that scene. This is how important this watch was, that it actually... Some man actually did that humiliating thing to get the watch to him. Sure, I get that. I just don't think that actually exemplifies why this kid should actually care. Well. Effectively. Assuming that whether or not you buy how important the watch is, that the movie wants you to know mm-hmm. that the watch is important. And again, there's misdirection. So he's like, oh my God, he's gotten away with this clean, this whole scheme to rip off Marcellus Wallace and make a lot yeah. of money and start a new life. But he's going to risk it all, including his own life, to get that watch well, back. Well, those okay. scenes are great. Like seeing him walk through the yard from just watching him walk. Oh, yeah. Like there are some really gorgeous moments leading up to it, for yeah. sure. And it's very tense. The toaster pastries. It's very... And, the to- and, the t- and, and, and again, that scene where he's in the apartment and he's like, oh, okay, I got it. I'm going to get my mm-hmm. watch. I'm going to have some time for some toaster pastries. And he looks down and he sees the machine gun. Yeah. <laughs> the kitchen like, counter. Oh. Oh, that's great. And then the toilet and the door flushes. Opens. And then Travolta walks out with that book in his hand. Right. Yeah, and, no, it's great. And you can imagine if Tarantino had to pitch this to somebody. And he goes back and he's just lucky enough to walk in when the moment when Travolta's on the toilet and he left his gun out. You're like, oh, yeah, really? Great. Then what happens? Well, then he gets away. Oh, really? Okay. Well, then what happens? Well, then he runs into Marcellus Wallace. With a box of donuts. Because Marcellus Wallace had left the apartment to go get some donuts and bring it back just at that very moment. It's like, oh, really? Then what happens? Well, then they have a fight. Oh, then what happens? Then they get kidnapped by r- crazy, hillbilly, racist, homosexual racists. And trapped in a basement. And you're like, yeah, why? What? That was definitely the moment I said, what out loud? I said, what out loud? What? (laughs) What? Well, and it's funny because I. What now? I literally, I think what I said was, what now? (laughs) (laughs) I think the thing that gets me is that the storyline with Travolta and Thurman, it fits in with the rest of the story and where the story goes in a way that the Willis stuff doesn't. Like, I really think you could take all of that out and it would work still pretty much, you know? Hmm. Well, in a weird way, in, except in a Tarantino movie, it couldn't. And, and, and again, I go back to his emphasis of violence as the only way people relate to each other. So, right, but I guess what I'm saying is it's one thing if we see Marcellus have a change of heart after that that impacts the rest of the story. But as it is, it's completely self-isolated, you know? Well, it is and it isn't. I mean, Marcellus Wallace exists in the movie as a, as just a source of danger. He's not really right, a character Right, I mean, you don't even see almost. his face he's for, just, until that car crash. Yeah, for the, yeah he's, he's, just, he's just the big bad guy who can hurt anybody he likes. And that, over, that sort of overshadows the whole, the whole Vince and Mia thing. And it overshadows this. And the problem, again, for the characters is how is Bruce Willis going to escape with his life after betraying Marcellus. Right. And the answer that Tarantino provides is he, Bruce Willis, is going to save Marcellus from horrible violence by mm-hmm. committing violence of his own. Right. That's how it works right. yeah. in the Tarantino world. They're not going to have a conversation about it. The enemy of my enemy is my friend. Right. That's the only way it can work. And in this universe, it works. I mean, that's, would you believe if they sat down and talked it out? No. <laughs> no, I, yeah, I hear you. I just don't. 
I still just don't think it actually matters, but that's okay. I was just going to say too that it it feels like I think Peter you called it bizarre misogyny, which is a good way of putting it because it's not normal misogyny. It's extra. No, yes. It's its own Tarantino sort of misogyny. It's a different flavor. In the in that scene in particular where they're uh, in that weird dungeony basement and there's the line about is Grace okay up front? I, for that whole scene, was thinking there's, like, some female character running the store while they're downstairs. And then, of course, no, Grace is the name of the motorcycle. The chopper. Right. The chopper. The chopper. <laughs> so the, maybe the only time except between Honey Bunny and Ringo uh, that you hear someone express actual concern for a female, mm-hmm. <laughs> it's not actually yes. a woman, it's a chopper. Well, I, I mean, there's a lot of concern for Mia. There's a lot of people but caring. But it's much more possessive. No, but they're concerned about what happens to Wallace's yeah, property. Yeah. Not what yeah. happens to me right. at the yeah. person. That's sure. absolutely for right. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. I, 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 I concede that point. Let's listen <laughs> to a voicemail from Jesse because this brings up something that we have not yet discussed that I think we should in terms of what does and doesn't hold up about this. I, I think I think I know what this is going to be. Yeah. I still think that the use of the racist language, the N word in particular, is. Um, a problem, um, and I think it, I think it was harmful because I think it actually sort of, for my generation of people who are in high school around that time, um, it sort of suggested that maybe it was okay to use that word as long as you were doing it kind of ironically, and um, uh, especially for white people, um, as long as you weren't intending it as a racial slur. Um, and so I, th- I think it kind of created this idea that that was an okay word to use by white people. And I think it, it took some people a while to figure out that that was actually harmful. You know what, Justin, should we listen to Christina and Nick right now also? Because they kind of mentioned the same thing. Hi, Nerdette. It's Katrina. And Nick. We live in Chicago. So we just watched Pulp Fiction. And for the most part, I think it's fine. The direction is really great, but a lot of the writing, I I always kind of feel this way with Quentin Tarantino, where... I kind of feel like it's an excuse for him to type a bunch of slurs that he can't really get away with saying in real life, but then he also gets to direct himself saying them, and that always feels a little weird. I hated Pulp Fiction when I watched it in 2015, and now that I walked into it knowing that these people were terrible, terrible humans who make terrible choices, like, don't do drugs. Don't do drugs and drive a car. Don't do drugs and mix them with other drugs so you overdose. Don't take the person who overdosed to your drug dealer. So many terrible choices. But it is a really well-directed film. So I don't hate it as much as I did five years ago. Katrina and I clearly would have been friends in high school. (laughs) Yeah, well, she brings up some really good points. She absolutely does. But yeah, the, the racial slur thing, I think these two mentioned like it's there are just a lot of racial slurs like against a lot of different people and like i was probably more shocked by some of those other words just because i have not remind me of the other ones there there are words for asian people there are words yeah especially kind of you know in the context of like the vietnam war when christopher walken is talking. you know like there's some well and let's be honest it feels different to hear samuel l jackson say some of those words than it does to watch quentin tarantino to nick's point Write them for himself. Right. It does feel self-indulgent, and it does feel really gross yep. for him to be like, I get to be a white guy who says this on screen. Yep. yep. 
everything about everything I'm about to say is not like my opinion. Like this is okay, but how we thought about it when the movie came out, how white people you knew, and how people reacted to it for the most part was, well, he's writing about these cool, violent characters who aren't realistic. It's like these weird gang. I mean, I mean, these gangsters dress in black suits, and so yes, it's it's totally legit that it's part of this fictional pulpy to take the title of the movie. It's overt world that these guys throw around racist stuff with complete lack of of even hostility they're just saying it because that's the word they use uh and people also forgave tarantino a lot because among other things there are so many great black characters in this movie i mean the coolest guy in this movie is samuel l jackson so you gotta people weighed that against the racist slurs. Well, yeah, on the one hand, he's using the M word a lot. On the other hand, look what he did for this character. It's amazing. Like the coolest and the most emotionally um, uh, sort of complex, and yeah, who right. has actually maybe a character arc. Yeah, right. All those things. All that's there. Yeah, yeah. Now at the time, there were people who went against that. Like, no, it's not cool. Yeah. And it's not a word that you can just throw around to make your characters sound street and hip and tough. It's a word with a lot of terrible meanings for a lot of people. There's a story I couldn't find it of, because Tarantino became the screenwriter of the moment. And he was writing movies for a lot of other people to direct, which didn't continue to go on for a while for obvious reasons. And he wrote a movie, I can't remember what it's called. It's this submarine thriller with Gene Hackman and Denzel Washington. And uh, somebody, everybody listening to this movie is shouting out the name of the movie. I can't remember it. Oh, um, Crimson Tide is the movie you're thinking of. Crimson Tide, thank you. Um, there's a story that Tarantino's on set because he was brought in to rework the screenplay to make it cool. And Denzel Washington walks over to him and says, Quentin, let me talk mm. to you about the N-word. Mm. And let me tell you about what I feel like when I hear your character say that word. And gave him an immense amount of grief over it. And... That, to me, would be terrifying if Denzel Washington were to walk over to me and tell me that he was unhappy with me. That's classy as fuck, I feel like. Like, good for him. Yeah, and there and there are the other people who have come out and talked about it. Spike Lee has been on record saying, yeah, like, no, it's, this it, is it not cool. seems yeah. unnecessary. No. It's a, yeah, it's a yeah, no. And the thing is, is the movie, you could have subtracted all of those words. Oh, yeah, totally. You still got plenty, like, hundreds of fucks. Yeah, you, yeah, know? you do. Yeah. Yeah. And and we're not even talking. I mean, we're getting into this. And, and to me, one of the most problematic things about the movie that I I forgive it a lot for all the reasons I've said is what happens to that character in the back of the seat. The mm-hmm. guy who gets his head yeah. blown off. Marvin. Because again, again, there's that misdirection. You know, they've they've gotten the, the briefcase. They've gotten away. They've killed the guys. Nobody's been caught, even though they hung out in the apartment after shooting guns for a long time. Nobody bothered to call it in. Can we listen to a clip, actually? Because that was one of my, the, the divine intervention moment I thought was really fascinating. It kind of speaks to Samuel L. Jackson's character, too. We should be fucking dead, man. I know. We was lucky. No, 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 no. That shit wasn't love. Yeah, maybe. This was divine intervention. You know what divine intervention is? I think so. That means that God came down from heaven and stopped the bullets? That's right. That's exactly what it means. God came down from heaven and stopped these motherfucking bullets. I think it's time for us to leave, Jules. Don't do that. Don't fucking blow this shit off. What just happened here was a fucking miracle. Chill, Jules. This shit happens. Wrong. Wrong. This shit doesn't just happen. Do you want to continue this theological discussion in a car or in a jailhouse with the cops? We should be fucking dead, my friend. What happened here was a miracle, and I want you to fucking acknowledge it. All right, it was a miracle. Can we go now? 
I have to say, I really did love just like the strange spirituality of Pulp Fiction. I was very surprised by that. That that leads to not only my favorite scene in the movie, but probably the single best scene that Tarantino has ever done, which is the climax mm-hmm. of the movie. Yeah. Leading up to that great speech uh, that, where, that where he lets them go. At the diner and quoting Ezekiel again and paying him so he doesn't have to kill him. Yes. And... It, I'm try- it says, I, I realize that, that I am the tyranny of ir- yeah. evil men. But I'm trying to be the shepherd, Ringo. I'm trying really hard. Because in a movie in which we've basically, as I've been saying all along, it's all about violence and people threatening other people with violence and doing other people with violence, doing violence to other people for whatever motivation, somebody choosing not to be violent, Mm -hmm. that character Mm -hmm. choosing not to be violent is like the most moving human thing that Quentin Tarantino is is, uh, capable of. And I, I got to tell you, I mean, it's more than just admiring it. Like, wow, that's really great movie making and acting. It's like I've actually taken that to heart when I have been like in a tough situation where I am tempted to give in to my worst instincts and act out of anger. I say to myself, no, man, I'm trying to be the shepherd. <laughs> so I just uh, to me that that last scene makes up for a lot of the shall we say, problematic stuff we've talked about and is totally real. I think that's actually a really nice note to wrap on, that we have one more voicemail and then we can all go watch Toy Story, I guess. <laughs> I guess so. <laughs> Here's Stephanie. Hi, Nerdette. This is Stephanie from Missouri. Last week, you guys were talking about Dazed and Confused and Greta discussed how she was more interested in the distance between her and her crush on the couch than she was in the movie. And I immediately thought of Pulp Fiction. The only good thing I have to say about Pulp Fiction was that I first watched it on the very first date with the man who would become my husband. And after the movie ended, we looked at each other with such confused looks. You might say we were dazed and confused. Granted, this was in around 2005, so the movie had already amassed quite the cult following, but we could neither one understand the appeal. I, however, completely understood my appeal for him, and we just celebrated our 10th wedding anniversary. I realize that we are in the minority of people who didn't get it, and we've made peace with that. Thanks so much. Love your show. How nice is that? It was sweet. I love sweet people calling in. A mutual confusion of Pulp Fiction bringing people together since 2010 or whatever it was. Mm. Greta, we have to actually end on a correction oh, from please. last week. Oh, Speaking ahead. of Dazed oh, and Confused, okay. which is that our friend Amy wants us to know that Anthony Rapp was not an Empire Records. Oh, yes, I know. We did get a, oh, we did get a message I about that. I didn't know. Too. I've never seen Empire Records. So, All right. She specifically filed. I appreciate that she didn't tweet at us about our um, misspeaking. But she just. Oh, I did get an email that there is a character <laughs> who is in both, but it is not Anthony Rapp mm-hmm, mm-hmm. in my defense. So just, you know, shout out to Amy for gently correcting <laughs> us. Her Broadway musical knowledge <laughs> precedes her. Uh, okay, so next week we're going to watch Toy Story. Yay! Oh, yeah. A complete 180. I'm really looking forward to some just like wholesome kindness, you know? Some Randy Newman. Oh, yeah. yeah. Oh, yeah. It's going to be great. Some T. Hanks, our old pal T. Hanks. T. Hanks. Uh, our old pal. Your, your oh, friend he... and mine. By the way, I'm just going to say this. If if you people listening to this have not heard the Nerdabit episode from 
2017 in which Tom Hanks <laughs> guested and talked about typewriters. Basically, talking about typewriters for half an hour without an intake of breath. We got like two questions in the entire time, and it's delightful. It's my it is favorite the thing. most amazing thing you have ever heard. I highly recommend it to everybody. It's the typewriter great. that he's playing around on is my typewriter from real life and it's sitting right next to me right now it's my hanksian typewriter yes the the tom hanks's monologue about typewriters which he made up on the spot is one of the greatest <laughs> works of literature i've ever had the pleasure of encountering we should, we should we should tweet that out again for people because it really is a nice respite from the rest of the world to just is, listen to tom hanks it is delightful and his joy it is truly delightful <clears throat> sorry the patriarchy speaking <laughs> so ladies be quiet peter Sagal is the worst because I cleared my throat, Justin? Listen, don't question the producer, okay? <laughs> Justin's got an itchy trigger finger over there. What can you say? The, the, the jingle just went off, Peter. He doesn't know what happened. It, the, the, the podcast hit a bump. <laughs> <laughs> All right, that's it for this week. Many thanks to all of you who called in with voicemails. Those were great. If you want to keep in touch with us before next week's episode, of course, you can do that over on the Twitters. I am at Greta M. Johnson. Trisha is at Trisha Bobita. And Peter is at Peter Sagal. The show is produced by me and Justin Bull. Our executive producer is Brendan Banazak. And our Superfly theme music is composed by Andrew Edwards of Blue Police Box Music. See you next week. Bye. Thanks for listening to the news live on WBEZ and NPR. The WBEZ stream sounds great in the kitchen on your smart speaker and anywhere on the WBEZ app. Listen every day.